Let's just, a couple of you weren't here last time, so let's just quickly review where we are. Um, we're in chapter 18 of the book of Genesis, and the uh, renewal of the covenant had occurred in the previous chapter, and the sign of the covenant was declared by God to be circumcision. We talked a bit, good bit about that last time. And um, then chapter 18 is divided, It's and it's really a precursor to what happens in chapter 19. But chapter 18, the first 15 verses, is Yahweh, and it says that in verse 1. Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. And I directed you to, to your map to where Mamre was, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go through all that again, but it's, it's where Abraham is living. It's where he pitched his tent. I mean, he's a nomad. He's a nomadic herder. He has vast herds. And as he's there, the, the Lord appears to him with two other individuals. They will be identified in verse 18 and following as angels. So Yahweh and two angels appear. He shows them magnanimous hospitality. Uh, this is Abram. And as we talked last time, in the ancient world, covenant agreements were always sealed with a covenant meal. And that's what's going on here. The covenant had been renewed in chapter 16. The sign of the covenant had been declared, i.e. circumcision. And now that covenant, the covenant has been cut. They've walked between the two. Remember all that in the previous chapters. So there is a great deal going on here, and don't miss that. This is this covenant meal which seals this covenant that's unilaterally and unconditionally made by God. And then to drive home the fulfillment of that covenant promise, God asks in verse 9, where is Sarah your wife? Not because God didn't know where she was, but it, the point is to draw attention to the main purpose now of the visit. To affirm that one year from today, the covenant son will be born. So after 25 years, God is about to fulfill the covenant promise. Do you ever wait 25 years for God to fulfill a promise? I mean, that's a, that's a long time. And as, as we read, we saw it in verse 24 of the previous chapter. Now we're going to see it here again. I mean, Abraham is almost, he, he will be 100 years old when Isaac is born. And then Sarah responds, and it tells us, verse 12, she laughs. Because she is way beyond, the end of verse 11 told us, way beyond the ability to have children. The way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. And she laughs. Not, it isn't so much a laugh of mockery. But it is a laugh of some doubt, but it's a laugh of just the, in, the incredible, incredulous, unbelievable possibility that she is going to conceive and give birth to a child. And so then, where we left off last time, in verse 14, what I think is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible, is anything too hard for Yahweh. That's always how you resolve doubt, by coming back to who has made the promise. Who has said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age? Jesus did. Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
And I mean, in your life and certainly in my life, I, I experienced that many, many times. Just go back, Lord, I don't understand what in the world is going on here. I don't understand how you're going to fulfill your promise that you'll be with me no matter what happens. You'll take care of me. I'll take care. And we always have to look at that through the perspective of eternity. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? It's a rhetorical question, but the obvious answer is no. And so it is to drive home, really, that the fulfillment of the covenant promise to Abraham and, and Sarah is a miracle. It's supernatural. There is no other explanation for a 100-year-old man having a baby. Or I should say siring a child. He doesn't have the baby. Sarah does. But you understand what I mean. And so she, she's then at the appointed time. I'm continuing in verse 14. I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. She was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. And I mean, she. this is God speaking to her. You did laugh. You laughed at the word of God. And so, I mean, so it's a rebuke, but I'm not trying to defend Sarah, but I am trying to make sure you understand Sarah. This is incredible to her. She's heard it for 25 years. Now, share it one more time. Very specific. A year from now, you will have a baby. And so God now is about to fulfill this covenant promise which he made 25 years ago to Abram and to Sarah. So I uh, didn't quite around a time last week to finish this, but um, it brings to a conclusion what is really now the introduction to what is going to happen at Sodom. And so and that transitions now to verse 16 where these men then look down towards Sodom. But we'll, I'll stop there for a minute. Any questions? or comments before we move into this next section on Sodom? Well, the what one you, I have is, in this next section, it said they looked down towards yep. Sodom. Yep. What, I don't know what down... Well, it is south. south. It would be south on the map. Mm-hmm. If you look at Mamre, which you can see on your map, if you look at Mamre. Now, remember, if you have to look carefully, but they're here, and they're looking down, it would be south. Almost always... Not quite almost always, but almost always. When you see down, it means south. But the other, it is geographical as well. They are at a higher elevation. Because remember, uh, 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 Sodom, Gomorrah, we're pretty sure it's near the southern end of the Dead Sea. That's 1,300 feet below sea level. So they are also looking geographically down. Uh, So does that answer your question? Uh, Yeah. So in... When, when uh, Sarah said, "I laugh not," for she was afraid. Is that a, 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 another example of, of uh, comparison to Eve being afraid? And- in in a way, and uh, and doubting, and and yet here she doesn't do anything rebellious against God like Eve did. She did earlier in giving her her maiden her servant to Abram, but. There is, and that's that's a good comment. There are parallels here between uh, Eve and Sarah, uh, as as we've seen a couple of times. All right, now we go to verse sixteen, and the entire narrative shifts to something else. So God and these two angels showing up has a positive purpose to it. 
to announce to Abram and Sarah that a year from now they're going to have this covenant son. But the second reason they show up is judgment. And this is Sodom. And this, of course, um, leads to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, indeed all of those cities in that very southern end of that, of that fertile valley, uh, which is always summarized as Sodom and Gomorrah. But what I want you to do here is I want you to, I want you to look at, at how Abraham responds to this. Because I want to remind you, who lives here? Who lives in the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah are located? Lot, Lot, Lot. Lot lives there. <coughs> Abraham's relative, his nephew, the son of his brother, and other, presumably, his, his extended family, that is Lot's extended family. So as things begin to unfold, now I, I think this is the right term to use, Abraham negotiates with God. And that's not always a real good idea. <laughs> but at the same time, in Abraham's negotiations with God, he understands two things about God. God is a God of judgment. But God is also a God of grace and mercy. And so he is appealing to the second of those two attributes. God, this is, this is an important New Testament principle. And I mean, it's actually in the Old Testament too, but it's really stated very clearly in the Epistle of James and in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the writings of Paul, especially in the book of Romans. God's justice is always tempered by his mercy. Now, let me, that's, that's kind of a good sentence. I ought to say that again. When I say a sentence, it makes meaning. I ought to write that down. God's justice is always tempered by his mercy. And the best example of that is the cross. Because God could have wiped out the human race. But in his justice, he provides a substitutionary payment and so at the cross, God's justice and mercy meet. They intersect. That's the way God always is. God will hold accountable those who defy his rules, his law, his character. But he does it after infinite patience, long-suffering, and example after example after example of grace. So that's... Don't understand what Abraham is about to do as we're starting this now. I want to. I want to. I just want to set this up for you so you understand. Don't understand this as arrogance on the part of Abraham. How dare you challenge what God's going to do? Abraham understands God, understands His character, His nature, and appeals to that. So, with all that said, verse sixteen. Then the men set out from there. From where? From Mamre. You see that on your map. And they looked down toward Sodom. In answer to Woody's question, we already talked about that. <clears throat> and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Verse 17. Now listen, listen to this language. Then the Lord, now that's Yahweh, said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? What is he about to do? He's about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And so rhetorically, God says, shall I hide this from Abraham? 
Why is that? A, why is that an issue? I mean, you could you could surface the question: Why is God concerned about this? And why is He asking? And who is He asking? His Lord doesn't have to ask anybody. That's right. Himself. That's right. He's asking I mean, it's rhetorical. That's what I mean by rhetorical. It's rhetorical. But why? He, he's saying, "Shall I hide? Not shall I hide this from Abraham? Hide what? That I'm about to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah." Now there are there are two reasons here. There are two answers, in a sense, that are provided to this rhetorical question. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Two reasons why God is about to talk to Abraham and explain to him what he's about to do. Number one is he's told Abraham, in you, all the nations are going to be blessed. Sodom and Gomorrah isn't going to be blessed. He's about to wipe them out. So it, he, he could understand, that is, Abraham could understand a perceived inconsistency in what God is doing. You said that I'm going to be the channel of blessing. You're wiping out a whole area of your creation very close to where I live, including my relatives. I see a disconnect. Second, I want Abraham to be able to teach his children and his grandchildren and all of the descendants of Abraham what I'm really like. A God of justice, but a God of mercy. This is an object lesson, Abraham, that I am going to want you to use to teach what I'm really like. Do you understand? Two reasons. One, to explain the seeming disconnect. You said I'm going to be a channel of blessing. You're about to wipe out a major section of your planet where I live, including my relatives. And secondly, it's a didactic purpose. Didactic means teaching. I'm going to want you to use this to teach what I'm really like. So, are you with me? Okay. So, so the mercy here extends to the people that Abraham's to teach. Because they're being spared, they're not part of it. Well, yes, as a part, that's right, as a part of God's mercy and grace is learn from what you see God doing. That's something you and I should be able to resonate with even today. When you, many of you, I'm not sure where all of you are at, well, I know Joel has some kids around, but most of us, our kids have left the house. They've grown up, they're matured, a few not, but now it's a matter of grandchildren. But it's what do you want to teach your grandchildren? What do you want to model before your kids? The things of God. You want them to know God, know about God act wisely in terms of what God's like. You want them to know his nature and his character. God is not out to make your life miserable. God is the creator and savior and redeemer and sovereign Lord who has good things always for you. But it's important that you walk in loving obedience with him, that you take what he says seriously. I'd like to give you some examples of this. From my life, 
from history, from the Bible. Learn from these things. As one time has been said, it's been said many, many times, but one very important historian said this years and years ago, the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. But that should not be true in the believer's life. That we learn from what we read. We learn from what we see. And so this is to become an object lesson for Abraham and his descendants of what God's nature and character really are like. And so Abraham, Abraham will understand that because those key words at the end of verse 19 are righteousness and justice. After him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Because if you do not seriously pursue righteousness and justice, God will hold you accountable. It doesn't mean he's going to wipe everybody out like he just saw him. I want to talk about the nature of that in just a second. We're not there yet. But I'm I'm trying to get you to see that, that, that the Lord is using some profoundly important terms here that will resonate throughout the rest of the Bible, righteousness and justice. They are core values of our God. They're very serious things to him. And if we treat them flippantly, we treat them flippantly to our own danger, both individually as well as a civilization. Mm -hmm. Is there any sin that God cannot forgive someone who has come to Christ who knows better than to engage in a particular event or act and that cannot be forgiven other than well there is no no sin that cannot be forgiven except the final sin the last breath you take you still reject God you still reject his grace. You still, I mean, I mean that, that's the ultimate. But that, I, I see nothing in the Bible that indicates uh, that there's any other sin uh, than that. That should be an encouragement to us sometimes when we get discouraged in sure. life. Mm-hmm. And, and we think we're so far from him that he isn't interested. You're never... Um, if you're a child of God by faith in Christ, God's relationship with you, we've talked about this many times, but God's relationship with you is different. You're now his child. He is your heavenly father. If you've not made that decision of faith, you, you, that relationship is different. But until you take your last breath, I don't see anything in Scripture that would contradict this. There is never a loss of hope for you. I mean, I've, you've know, I've known several individuals in the last moments of their life they put their faith in Christ a lady that he she and her husband went to Israel with me but he was just one of those he just refused to put his I talked to him he just refused to put his faith in Christ he said I don't want to do this I won't do it and it was in the last hours of his life he was dying of heart can't I mean a whole bunch of things and he was dying it was my, and he came to his wife Harriet and said tears streaming down his face I finally gave in to Jesus. Amen. And 1.17 a.m. the next morning, he went to be with the Lord. He finally gave in. I mean, it's amazing. 
And when she told me that, she was crying. I mean, it was all, but she was just saying, that's what I prayed for. She prayed for him for 25 years. He just would I talked to him. He, he went to Israel with me. I mean, it's unbelievable. He just would not do it. He just would not do it. He refused to do it. And it was an act of his will. He knew. He knew the, he knew the Bible, but he just wouldn't do it. And finally, at the last moments of his life, he gave in. Or you could say he gave up. <laughs> so it's never too late. And there's nothing that, well, anyway, yeah, I could tell you another story, but I'm not going to tell you stories. I want to read the Bible. Okay, any qu other questions? interesting that the number of years that his wife struggled, the same number of years that Sarah and Abraham mm. Yeah, I'm sure that's just a coincidence, but yes, you're right. Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, it was, that's a very, because I knew them, know them, I know her, she's still alive, but uh, I knew him for quite a long time. But he was one of those amazing guys. He just, but God broke through the crusty. That's got to be encouraging. I, I'm glad you brought that up. That'd be encouraging to somebody on death row. Mm, absolutely, you know. absolutely. Absolutely. It is never too late to put your faith in the Lord. Absolutely. Let's move on. Verse 20. It's then the Lord... It's too late if you don't make the decision before you cash it. Yes, well, yeah, then it is too late, but that's right. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come up to me, and if not, I will know. Now, this is, this is in a way, this is a little bit silly when you first think about it. I will go down. I mean, here's God. I will go down. God doesn't know this. What's, what's going on here? It is going to be crystal clear that when God makes the decision of judge to judge, there's enough evidence. This isn't an impulsive act on the part of God. This isn't a temper tantrum of the deity. This is a just act of a righteous God. And he, the language is that I will go down to see. Go back to Genesis chapter 11. It's exactly the same language that was used with the Tower of Babel, where God says, I will go down to see what they have done. What does that mean? Well, one way, one thing it means is they're not even close to getting to him as they're building this tower. They're not even close. But the other thing is God, God is investigating and making it clear with, with absolute evidence that what he is about to do is just. This isn't an impulsive act. And the language, when it says the, whether they have done together the, the outcry that has come up to me, what does that mean? That what is going on in Sodom and Gomorrah has been going on for a long time. And the outcry is so overwhelming that God is saying, I'm going to make one, one final visit to gather the final evidence before I act so that when I act when I act it will be absolutely understood as just and righteous because back to verse 19 
righteousness and justice. What's the source of the outcry? Rumor has it. <laughs> <laughs> what? Guys are... It's... Um, is it the outcry of just the evil that permeates this area? Uh, as you know from the dialogue Abraham has to, to uh, with God, there aren't righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. They can't even count ten. Yeah. It's Lot and not Lot and maybe his two daughters. It's, there's a real question as to whether Lot's wife is even genuinely a believer in, in, in God. Lot is. Lot is affirmed in other parts of God's word as a believer. So it, it, it doesn't seem as if there are people in Sodom and Gomorrah and the towns around it crying out to the Lord. The only other possibility, that's a really good question because it's problematic. The only other possibility is it is, it is Abram, it is his family that is crying out to God for what is happening because it isn't that far from where they live. And we do not know the extent of the contact between, the Bible just doesn't tell us, the extent of the contact between Abraham and Lot and his family. Okay. So the, the, the nature of Jim. sin here, I mean, I think we generally assume it's homosexuality, but it must be broader and deeper oh, than that. Yeah. Kind of a general rebellion against God. And a, yes. Yes, I want to address that in just a minute when we get to that. What? What? I mean, there is no. Well, I don't think there's any question. Some people, first time it came up was in the late 20th century. Never been an issue until now. But anyway, uh, I think that it is homosexuality. But it's it's that's only the first of a whole cluster of things that are going on. And I want I want to go to Romans chapter one to to illustrate that in a minute. All right, let's let's look now at what, because you would expect, and immediately you would go to the judgment, but that's not what happens. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord, and Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That's a, that's a deep question. In your judgment... Now, I'll put it in a colloquial way. In your judgment, are you going to wipe out the righteous and the unrighteous? Are you going to kill those who are defying you as well as those who are choosing to follow you? You're not going to make a discriminating difference here, God? And so he poses a series of hypothetical issues. Abraham knew that his God was a God of mercy. This isn't arrogance. This isn't hubris. This is Abraham in humility and in reverence saying to God, God, it's right, isn't it? You don't wipe out the righteous with the unrighteous, do you? I mean, I know what's going on down there in that valley. And I know what you're about to do. But God, because I know who you are, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? That's verse 24. 
Will you then sweep away the place and not spare the righteous, it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's rhetorical. Abraham is asking that. Again, do not understand this as Abraham defying God. Abraham is appealing to God, his character, and what he knows about God. God, you don't wipe out impulsively righteous people. So hypothetically, if I can find 50 people, will you spare the city? And the Lord responds, if 50 at Sodom, if I find 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am dust and ashes. There's the humility, arrogance. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. He's down to 45. Will you destroy for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy. Verse 29, suppose 40 are found. For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Verse 30, suppose 30 are found. I will not do it. Verse 31, suppose 20 are found. I will not do it. 32. Suppose 10 are found there. For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he'd finished speaking to Abram, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, the inference that we are to draw because of what happens in chapter 19 is there weren't even 10 righteous in the city. That's the inference we're to draw. God couldn't find even 10. So that's why chapter 19 immediately moves into an explanation of why God is about to do what he's about to do. And it is extraordinary. So... I guess before I go into this, any questions or comments? Are you with me? Do you understand this? I, I, I should. I maybe shouldn't have used the word negotiation because I'm not sure that's the right word negotiating. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to get to understand. God does not destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. Well, that's not necessarily what God always permits. But God is saying, based on justice which is what you're appealing to, Abram. If we can find 10 righteous, I will spare the city. Because of what happens in chapter 19, apparently there was only one righteous. Maybe his daughters. So that'd be three. But there's anybody else? Okay, Daryl. Why is, is God choosing to um, communicate so clearly to Abraham on his turf, on his comprehension? In other words... He's omnipresent. He didn't need to, you know, he already knows everything about Sodom. So why is he going? Uh, he, he didn't have to eat because he's God. Um, and yet he chose to, for the communion, uh, you know, I don't know. You know, Christ well, the body, he ate. Right, right. Well, and it's, it is a, and this is probably the second person of the Trinity, a theophany, but it, it, we talked a little bit about that last week. This is a covenant meal. 
And this is, uh, this is something that was uh, and is a, a significant part of how God deals in the future with the peace offering. In the Levitical law, you had the burnt offering, which was followed by the peace offering, and then a meal followed that, where you are at peace with God and you share this covenant meal. It's part of the Lord's table as well. The Lord institutes it, and he says in Mark 14, I will not do this again until I eat and share this with you in my Father's kingdom. There are, there's something about eating a meal which illustrates and, and really manifests the intimacy and fellowship that we can enjoy with God, as you do with a good friend. One, I mean, I'm sure that's true. One of the special things that is just fun is whether it's with family or with friends, it's just to enjoy a meal together. It's been that way for 5,500 years of recorded history. It's always been that way. I think that's part of the way God created us. It's part of the intimate. And so God is saying to us, I will enjoy that with you too. Here, in, in this particular context, in the peace offering meal, which was a part of the Levitical code, in the Lord's table. They're all illustrations and in a way object lessons of the intimacy and fellowship that God wants to enjoy with us. This is image bearers. And that he, in a sense, that he is willing to condescend and even have this conversation with Abraham. I mean, he could have just pushed Abraham out of the way. This is crazy for me to talk to you about this. It's so obvious what I have to do, Abraham. But Abraham says, no, I know who you are, God. I know your character. I know your nature. My nephew's down there. His family's down there. And I don't know, I mean, you know, Abraham lived in, in this part of the of the of Canaan. He was always on the west side of the Jordan. But for 25 years, God, are you, you going to wipe everybody out? What if there are some righteous people down there? And so he's just saying, God, it's your nature. This is who you are. God says, you're right. If we can find even 10, I'll spare the city. That chapter 19 follows what indicates what? He couldn't find 10. There were not 10 righteous people in that city. Jim, we have relatives, uh, all of us around this table, I'm sure, that um, uh, that are not born-again believers. Uh, they haven't put their faith in Christ. And this is, this is a pretty good platform for having a dialogue with a God who does not change. Yeah. He said, I change not. Yeah. So the God of this book of Genesis is the same God Absolutely. in 2016. Yeah. And that we can have a dialogue with him. And if we're burdened... We intercede, we pray, we beg, we appeal uh, to, the, to God and to them. And to them. I think it's it's important, you know. In in you have to it depends on how well you know them and all that, but just appeal to them of, of what uh, of of what God has done through you for you through Christ. Um, I'm appealing you to make that's what I did with Charlie many many times. That man who trusted the Lord in the last hours of his life, um, but it is ultimately. I'm, I'm preparing some stuff I'm going to be doing this fall. It's ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit, though. I mean, it ultimately, it's, it's the Spirit who broke 
the walls of Charlie's heart down, where in the last hours of his life, he finally gave up. I can't explain that dynamic at the railroad tracks that you've seen me do before, but anyway, it's, it's never too late for us to intercede, to pray, to appeal, to beg both God and that person to put their faith in him. God will continue his work. Now, uh, yes, please. But in reality, we're, we are only channels for the word. And there's, there's my feeling, our strongest, uh, our strongest conviction is our, our, daily, our daily lives and, and what people see through our daily lives and, and the aura of the spirit that comes from us when, when we Oh, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. Uh, you have to parse this carefully, but Francis of Assisi used to say, at all times preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. <laughs> and, and what he meant by that, I mean, I, you have to still speak the word, yes. but how we live and what people see is the greatest, the greatest testimony to the grace of God that's far greater than what we even say, because so often what we say doesn't match up how we live. But I think that's what Jesus meant when you're the salt, you're the light of the earth. How you live is important to me, and it will be used by my spirit on, on, on behalf of others to bring them to the, to the faith. Now, it's really, that's, my, that's, my, that's one of my tremendous struggles in life. My wife, my wife keeps reminding me of this, that how you live is as important as what you say. And so often people see you and see what your nature and character, et cetera, is before they hear you speak a word. <laughs> I want you to turn with me. I, I forgot I didn't bring my Bible. I have it on my phone. So if you will turn with me to the book of Romans. Before we dig into chapter 19, which we are going to do at length, I, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. And I want to pick up with verse 24. Now, we can, I mean, we could read 18 to 24, but I, I, want, you, I, want, to see, I want you to see something here. It gets to the heart of what Jim asked uh, several minutes ago. What Paul is doing here, and we studied Romans a couple years ago, so I don't know if you remember that, but the first three chapters of the book of Romans are about the, the, the revelation of God to humanity and how humanity has responded. Chapter 118 through 34 is God's revelation of his creation, his created world, okay? And how humanity's responded. And it says to us here that God has, excuse me, that humanity has suppressed the truth about God that's evident in his creation. So, okay, it's that, it's that rejection. And the response of the humanity then is idolatry. They worship the created thing instead of the creator. Verse 24 picks up now the consequence. If you reject God's revelation, this is what starts to happen. Now, this is what getting at Jim's point. What you see here is the downward cycle that starts. And that downward cycle almost always starts with sexual perversion. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In verse 24, Romans 1. Because they exchanged the truth about God 
for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their sin. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of evil, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now stop there. What I want you to see in this passage in Romans is what we see in in, in Genesis 19. Sexual perversion is the first step in the downward spiral of evil. And you look, and I mean, just saw that. First step, God gave him over to passion. Step two, God gave him over to perverted, unnatural. The key word there, the key word, and that's so often missed that. The key word in verse 26 and verse 27 is natural. Natural. That takes you back to the creation orders of God. The natural things God created is heterosexual relationship. That's the natural thing, Genesis 2. So, and, and then the, the consequence of that is in verse 28 and following. The consequence of that then is a debased mind to rationalize and justify the things that God says are not justifiable. And just one thing leads to another thing leads to another thing. And 29, 30, and 31 are just evidence of the downward spiral. Now, men, without trying to get into politics or anything, all I'm making is a comment. Do you see evidence of this cycle in American civilization today? I do. And I'm not not talking about any individual. All I'm saying is that because of what Paul talks about in this step-by-step refusal to acknowledge who God is and what he stands for, this is what you start to see. It isn't, only, it isn't only the same-sex marriage phenomena. It's all the things you see in 29, 30, and 31. Because the consequence of rejecting God, who he is, what he stands for, is verse 28, a debased mind. God gives him over. That's the way God made his world. If you choose not to follow me, and you choose, you choose to deny everything I've revealed... God will not force you to love him. God will not force you. Okay, this is the way I made my world. There is a natural, chaotic, dysfunctional disorder that follows. And I don't know how anyone who's objective and intellectually honest can look at human history and not see the evidence for this. It's everywhere. Every civilization that has rejected God and rejected what he stands for, rejected his, they do not last. And it's because these things, these things that you see in 29, 30, and 31, undermine the order 
and purpose of civilization. I mean, just the natural order of things that just disintegrates. And that's where it's, it's an amazing, it is really an amazing thing to see in the United States. I mean, it really is. The rapidity of this, this is, it's so rapid how this is happening. And, and, and not that, I mean, in one sense, you know, we delude ourselves to think that the United States has always been a righteous, perfect nation. It hasn't been. I'm reading a book right now on, on the nation of slavery in the pre-Civil War South. That's pretty ugly stuff to read. But all I'm saying to you, there, it's, there was always a very, 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 very significant remnant. That remnant's getting smaller and smaller and smaller in the United States. And what you see Paul describing here, and this is what you see then in Sodom and Gomorrah. It isn't only the homosexuality that I believe that's the point of chapter 19, but it's much deeper than that. This is a civilization in the southern part of the Jordan Valley on the west eastern side, which is where this is located. I mean, it was, it was downright brutal and ugly and dysfunctional. And the perversion that was a part of it is only the surface of a much deeper, deeper sickness that sin causes. And God, in his justice and in his righteousness, the scene we saw in chapter 18, makes the decision to bring it to an end. So, does that answer your question, Jim? No, it does. I mean, the two most interesting words in my, as I read this are the praise mind, mm-hmm. which, as I think about our contemporary circumstances, mm-hmm. makes it clear why it's so impossible to reason That's right. with people who are have this perspective. That's right. That's right. I mean, you could, you could share with them the consequences that are outlined here, mm-hmm. and there would be no cognizance mm-hmm. of it at no. all. And it would have no effect whatsoever. No, that's right. These are the people that are condoning the courts deciding the use of bathrooms. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that's what I mean. It just it's it's so pervasive. And 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 Jim Jim's comment is the correct comment. This debased, depraved mind, where you can rationalize things that are just. And it, I mean, it's 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 all of these things. Rationalize all of this. And in the United States of America in 2016, rationalize all of this on the basis of freedom and right. I'm free. I have the right to do whatever I want. And the, the core value of 21st century America is autonomy. I'm an autonomous person. I'm answerable only to myself. I mean, and that, that's, you know, that's, oh my goodness, that is, you can't build a lasting civilization on the premise of autonomy. You just can't do it. It's just, it will not work. <laughs> it's just not going to work. If you look at liberty, and you look at the definition of, of liberty, it's not autonomy. Not at all. Autonomy is anarchy. Liberty is accountability. Well, the founders of our nation used to speak of ordered liberty. That's a phrase I don't think I've heard anybody use that in 25 years. But ordered liberty. This nation, oh, I'm, I was going to go down a bunny trail. I'm not going to do that. This, this nation was built on a triangle. And I, I didn't make this up. It comes from another guy. But the triangle was on one point. You know what a triangle is. One point of the triangle is freedom. Another point of the triangle is virtue. The other point of the triangle is faith. 
Faith, freedom, virtue. Virtue, Jefferson, Adams, Washington, Hamilton, they all used the word virtue. Uh, uh, Adams would say, we seek to build a virtuous republic. And virtue, that's a, that's a 19th century, 18th century word. We don't use that much anymore. But that's a very important word to them. Uh, virtue is you're always thinking of others. You're community-minded. You think of the greater whole. You're here to serve. I mean, there are principles that fit with the scriptures. And he would say, they would say that faith, faith is the key to virtue. Because without faith, you end up as virtue becoming, I just do whatever I want to do. And you see what's happened to that triangle. Faith and virtue don't exist. You just have freedom. And freedom without faith and virtue doesn't work. Freedom turns into autonomy. Now, we're way beyond Genesis 19. But it's important for you and me who know the Lord to see what it, without just and I, I, it's not that we aren't concerned, but not, not, not just focusing on the same sex issue, but how this is evidence of a much, much deeper problem. The debased mind, where you can rationalize any human activity, any human choice based on freedom. But freedom without virtue and faith is not going to work. The United States of America culturally is in the process of self-destructing. And I mean, it really is. I mean, it's just, you can't, it cannot last like this very long. And I don't mean tomorrow, but I mean, in it's hard to imagine another 240 years of this. That's how old our republic is. I mean, it's hard to imagine another 240 years. You know, Stennis wrote the, the Book of Virtues. Yeah. You know, I don't know when it was 10 or 20 years ago it was published. It's an excellent book. But it was it was an effort to try to point back to the foundational virtues of this country. That's right. That have been totally lost. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's not totally. There's a remnant. It's pretty small. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, and, and that's why our our hope remains in the Lord. That, yeah. All right. It's 20 minutes of, but let's start. Is it right if I start chapter 9? I'm going to draw us back to the Bible. Okay. Did you identify those two angels? No. By names or anything? No. 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 It doesn't. It doesn't. There are only two angels named in the Bible, Michael and Gabriel. It's maybe, maybe it's Michael and Gabriel, but we don't know. It doesn't tell. Verse 21 of chapter 19. Now, as we start this, I want you, I want to have, I want you to have two words in your mind. The word destruction and the word deliverance. God is about to destroy, but he's also about to deliver. Destruction and deliverance. That's the twin theme. That's always the theme. God will destroy, but God will deliver. The two angels, now, who are these? These It takes you back to the two that had joined Yahweh in chapter 18 came to Sodom in the evening, the lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. Now, uh, that's, uh, I'll make a quick comment. Every city of the ancient world had a wall around it. And every city of the ancient world had a wall around it, had a main gate. It was the only way you could get into the city. Some larger had multiple gates, but usually one gate. And, that's, and then you would walk in, and it's the gatehouse. That's where all the elders of the city would sit. And so Lot is apparently one of those. He's sitting at the gate, in the gatehouse of Sodom. 
When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. All that means, that's just ancient Near Eastern hospitality. That's all that is. He said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Again, that's Near Eastern hospitality. You wash people's feet. That you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly so they turned aside to him and he entered his house and made a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now, in your Bible, I just want you to make note of something. The verse 3, it says, Lot pressed them strongly. Let your eye go down to verse 9. They pressed hard against this man, Lot. And the same Hebrew word. So when it says, Lot pressed them strongly, he really pressed them. He relentlessly said, I want you to come into my house. Why? Because he knew what would happen to them if they tried to stay in the square. You see, the angels are sent by Yahweh to get the final piece of evidence, if you want to put it that way, of why it was necessary for God to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and actually the other cities of that plain. Lot knew. Why is Lot pressing them so hard? Because he knows if they're in the square, I know what's going to happen to them. This is a debauched, depraved, unbelievable city to live in. And so Lot is aware of this. Yes, Joel. So he doesn't necessarily know that they're angels. He's just looking out for their well-being. I'm not sure that we have enough information to answer that question. The way in which it unfolds, you get the impression that Lot has a sneaking suspicion. These are just ordinary visitors. But I, that's an inference. But it's seen. But he is concerned about their welfare. And that, that becomes really clear because of what happened. I mean, this, might, this must have been really some unbelievable city to live in. A, a, a debauched city where even guests could be open to sexual exploitation. Verse 4, please note, but, it's always a word of contrast. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. I mean, I don't know if that's hyperbole or that's literal, but it means every male in the city surrounded the house. And they called the lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. The Hebrew word for know is yada. If you make it into English, it's Y-A-D-A. It is used throughout the Old Testament as a figurative expression of sexual intercourse. It is used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, and Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. 
So this isn't, we would like to have an intellectual conversation about them, with them about the politics of the northern area in Mamre, where they came from. That's not what it's about. Yada is a metaphorical description of sexual intercourse. We want to have sex with them. And because these are male, this is homosexual acts of sex. And by the way, that's where we get the word sodomy. I'm sure you know that. Sodomy is a word that comes from Sodom. So the acts of the men in Sodom. Now, verse 6 has got to be one of the most astonishing verses in the whole Bible. I can't imagine Lot went out to the man at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brother, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Lot is willing to sacrifice the virginity of his daughters to protect these two, who perhaps, as Joel intimated, he may know who they are. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under my sh- the shelter of my roof. Verse 9. But they said, stand now, the they are the men of the city. Stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he became the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Now he, the fellow, is Lot, came to sojourn. You came to live with us. Remember when he and Abraham divided, and he went down to the southern You don't belong to this city. You just came here a little while ago. Then they pressed hard, same word we saw in verse 3, against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men, that would be the angels, stretched out their hands and brought Lot into the house and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. You understand that, don't you? They're blind, but they're still trying to break down the door. That's real evil. So these angels had some powers. Absolutely. To blind them. That's correct. Why, why would he offer his daughters... Well, I think two things. Number one, it does show you to a degree that depravity of Sodom is rubbed off on Lot, that he even would consider doing that. Plus, and it gets back to something Joel asked, I think to a degree Lot is understanding something, who these people are. They either whether he knows they're angels or not, I don't know, but that they represent God, represent righteousness. And I am not going to be a participant in homosexual rape. I'm going to protect these guys. The other facet of this, now I don't know, it's hard for me, but it, it it is often brought up too. The other facet of this, this would be such a violation of hospitality to allow to allow the city to just take any man that comes into your house to, and, and rape them in, in a homosexual rape. I mean, this is uh, counter, counter to everything that he considered to be of value. 
But uh, I mean, to me, it does show, and I'm, we're going to have to quit here, but it, it, to me, it does show if you want to find out what happens, come back next week. But um, the, the, the level of depravity to which even Lot has sunk, that he's willing to give his daughters, who are virgins, they have not yet known a man, to satisfy the demands of this crowd. That's you know, I've often, I have two children, one of them is a daughter. I can't imagine doing that. I don't care how bad things that, can you imagine giving your daughter to satisfy the sexual demands of a crowd? It's just, it's unimaginable to me. Well, men, we, we really got on some bunny trails today. I hope that was all right. Even if it isn't all right, we did. So, but tomorrow what I want to do is I want to, I mean, uh, next Wednesday, to finish this section on 19, there's a great deal more I want to say about this chapter. So I hope you'll be able to come back. So anyway, all right, let's pray here. Lord, we're thankful that we can meet in a comfortable room like this. And so great that Woody was able to arrange this when we couldn't use the home instead room. Thank you, too, for these men, for their lives and what you're doing in their lives. As we together are instructed by your word, as we see with insight, what your character and nature really is. Abraham reflected on that. God, you're a God of righteousness, a God of justice, but you're also a God of mercy. Lord, wouldn't you spare this wicked city if there are some righteous people in it? He is not negotiating. He's declaring who God is and appealing to his mercy. God, I'm thankful you're a God of mercy because if you only dealt with me on the basis of justice, there would never be any hope for me. And I suspect that's true of every man around this table. But your mercy and your grace and your compassion is evident. It's evident, first of all, in sending Jesus, but it's evident in every day of our lives. You're a God who loves us, who is merciful and gracious and compassionate. You always go the extra mile with us. Help us to respond in loving obedience and desire to walk with you as, you allow, as we allow you to transform us from the inside out. That's really what you're doing to each one of us. Give us a good rest of this day. Protect and watch over these men. Help us all in what we do and say to represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. See you next week.